0: Uh, we've been studying the book or the, the letter of Titus, as we've said. We're in week three of four, wrapping it up next week. Um, in fact, I uh, want to let you know, next week, having Blaze Smith come and teach. Blaze has been a tribe leader. He's a teacher at Omaha Christian Academy, um, but interested in ministry, and he's sort of trying to figure out, could I, you know, be in ministry? He's been a, um, and a tribe leader for a number of years. He was in my small group. Um, which is incredible, so I love, anyway, so he's going to be here next week wrapping up Titus chapter 3. I'm really excited about that. Here's the question tonight. What's the life that God meant for you to live? What's the life that God meant for us to live? What kind of life is that? What kind of life does it look like? We've been saying the last two weeks that this is, first of all, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this guy, Titus, his buddy, his companion, but Titus was mentee, his protege, Um, We said the first week that the Apostle Paul wrote maybe around half of the New Testament. But this craziness in the book of Acts, and I don't know how much time elapsed, but in Acts chapters probably four, Paul likely, um, his name was still Saul at the time, was likely part of the group of Pharisees that was persecuting Christians, that was going around trying to get them arrested, trying to get the apostles arrested, really wanted to see them killed. And then by Acts chapter nine... Paul um, encounters the risen Savior. Jesus appears before him on on the road to Damascus. Has this radically life changing encounter, and almost immediately starts preaching the gospel. I mean, just goes, "Whoa! What, what, I've been wrong. I've totally been missing it." He got trained and explains some of that in the Book of Acts, but um, just incredible. But because he's sort of encountered Jesus, and we're not sure, I, we're not exactly sure what all Jesus explained to him or whatnot. But so so much letters became Scripture. We talked about the first week. How did that happen? Because if you were an apostle, that meant you had been with Jesus. You had talked to him. You, had, you were an eyewitness to Jesus. And so the apostles couldn't just tell other people what had said and play telephone, telephone, and eventually the message is sort of weird and skewed. So they wrote it down, and that's how we have the New Testament. But he, so he's writing to this pastor, this younger pastor named Titus. Titus, um, I don't think he, his name appears in the book of Acts, but he'd um, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 2, Titus's name pops up all over in, in the letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7, chapters 8. Paul is very, very fond of this friend of his named Titus. But so at a certain point, those two traveling together. They're going around planning churches all around the Mediterranean Sea. But at a certain point, Paul leaves Titus on this island, right? We showed it the first week, this island of Crete, and said, Titus, I want you to start churches on this island. I want you to appoint leaders and elders and um, See the church spread. We've also said that the theme of this letter is the good life. Kesselon talked last week, talked a lot about that. Um, Or you use this phrase a lot, Kesselon, the godly life. I I feel like when we use the phrase the good life nowadays, nobody thinks of, certainly we don't think of the book of Titus. We think of sitting on the beach. We think of at the very least sitting on a raft on a lazy river um, somewhere at oceans of and we go... Ah, like this is the good life. I'm relaxed, school's out, um, life is good. But so primarily what Paul's talking about to Titus is um, the godly life. How do we live a god? What does that look like? And in this letter, it becomes apparent that the life that God has for us and for the church is a life of virtue, a life of selflessness, a life of love for God that then plays itself out in love for others. Um, but here's what I'm going to wager. I'm going to wager that most of us, for most of us in here, when it comes to the good life, it's not the what but the how that's the real problem. Here's another way to say it. it would, I would bet that most of us look at the Bible's version of the good life and say, "Ah, you know what, there's sort of nothing there that interests me. I don't really want my life to resemble that at all. Most of us in here, I would imagine, would not say that. We would look at the kind of life that the New Testament lays out, the life of what a godly person looks like, and most of us would go, yeah, that looks like the version of like a pretty good life. That's the kind of life I want. That's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of character I want to have. I want integrity. I want to tell the truth. I want a wife or a husband someday who respects me and who I respect, and I want to have kids, and I want to be about certain virtues, and um, I don't want to live sort of lawlessly or however I want. That's what we want. The problem is, though, if that's the kind of life uh, we want, how do we get there? If the good life is sort of this vision that Paul paints over here, that's great, but how? How do we get there? We can talk about what it is all day, but what it is doesn't help me get there, right? And so we don't just want to know what, we want to know how. A picture of the good life doesn't necessarily give us the power for the good life, right? I had a guy come to me about a year ago, Um, a really good friend, a former Oasis student, a guy trying his best to follow after God, um, still comes to Brookside, um, still in Omaha. In fact, I had lunch this last Friday. I remember he came to me, I believe on a Sunday morning, and I think I was getting set up for a leader meeting, and it was, I remember exactly where I was, and um, he goes, he goes, Brad, I'm I'm like in this Tuesday morning group, and uh, he had just gotten out of college, I think, but he goes, he's He goes, Brad, it's just not working for me. Like sort of this, I'm trying, I'm trying to read my Bible, I'm trying to do what the group says, and I want to be a godly person. It's just not working for me. I don't don't know what I'm doing wrong. And he was a little bit frustrated. Um, He goes, I think God wants me to live a godly life, but I feel powerless to change. What do I do? What am I doing wrong? How do I get there? Destination is the good life. How do I get there? Can any of you relate to that? Do you go, man, life's just hard. And I see this picture, and we talk about it every week, and that's all fine and good, but my life doesn't look like that. And so how do I change? Is change even possible? How many of us love to feel powerless, right? None of us do. We're Americans. We want to be in charge. We want to take control. We want to have the capacity to get where we want to get and to do what we want to do, right? That's just the way we're wired. And yet, when we think about seeing our lives change, or getting over a certain sin struggle, or getting over a certain attitude problem. For how many of you, when you like wake up in the morning, as your parents, just like, your attitude is so bad right now. Um, maybe guys more than girl, girls more than guys, but guys, we're just grumpy. Girls, I don't know, maybe girls are a little sassier than guys. I don't know, the different genders sometimes play it out different. But even like my seven-year-old daughter, no, she's nine, what's wrong with me, is like totally attitude and sass, primarily to her mom, but even sometimes to me, we have this attitude problem. We feel powerless, though, to change it. And Chloe doesn't want to be that way. But there's something in her that just that just comes out that way. And so we might think if all God does is give her the good life, but not the power to actually change, then He's not very good. And what's up with that? And if the gospel just critiques our life, but doesn't actually change our life, then it's not really good news. And so how do we actually change? I want you to be encouraged tonight as we dive in to the second half of Titus chapter 2, the second paragraph from the end. Uh, Kesselong brought us into this chapter last week. But Titus 2 paints us a picture of the good life, but it also presents us with the power for the good life. So if you haven't yet, I'd love for you to grab a Bible or open up your app. If you don't have a Bible, you at least have a smartphone. I know you're in high school, most of you. Pull it out. Open up your Bible. I'd love for you to track along. Um, I know it'll be on the screen, but not everything will be on the screen all the time, and I'd love for you to see this text. Um, When you look at the structure of this entire chapter even, like I said, Kesselon took us through the first 10 verses last week. Um, Verses 1 through 10 sort of show us the what of the good life. Paints a very clear picture. Um, So imagine this, you're going in a car somewhere and this picture of the good life is the nation. As I've already said, we're trying to get there. It's where we're headed, a life of virtue and goodness, a life of self-control, a life of humility and justice and harmony and compassion, and that's where God wants to be. But how do you get there? We need power. We need fuel in the tank. We might have a car, but a car without fuel doesn't really get you anywhere, right? You're just stuck. So what's our fuel? So look at this verse 11. This is where we're starting tonight. 4. Very first word, for, is a very important word in the Bible, even. It's sort of a hinge in this chapter, a turning point. Whenever you see the word for or therefore, as they say, you want to find out what it's there. Many times it's just a transition saying, this is all this stuff I've just come out of maybe some practical stuff you should do. Why? Here's the reasons why. The rest of the chapter is why. Why the grace, for the grace of God, appeared. So what, what is the grace of God Um, We're going to talk about the grace of God tonight. How do we get there? What's our fuel? The grace of God is our fuel. And so we're going to, yeah, I know it's a very vague word. And so I'm going to unpack it. But here's the big idea tonight. Super simple. God's grace is the fuel for the good life. God's grace is the fuel for the good life. And that's what we're going to unpack It may seem simple. It may seem kind of churchy. You may go, I've heard that word my whole life and I guarantee you that will do nothing for me, the word grace. Seriously? But I want to unpack this. Um, I think it makes a ton of sense. But, so, what is grace? Um, first of all, let's read this whole section. I'm going to come back to the definition of grace. For the grace of God, Paul says, has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, grace It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then, Paul says to Titus, are the things you should teach. Encourage, rebuke with all authority, do not let anyone despise you. Just a side note, even, I, didn't, I don't know Greek, but I can read commentaries. Commentaries are just sort of elaborate volumes, books on the Bible. The Verses 11 through 14 are all one sentence in the Greek, in the original Greek language. Um, sort of interesting. It's sort of like the, in Ephesians chapter 1, there's like a period of 14 verses, and it's all one like huge run-on sentence. But so, it's like Paul just gets going and he doesn't stop. So, what is the grace of God? Well, it's just a simple definition of grace. Many of you, you learned this in, I don't know, second grade Sunday school. Grace is unmerited, right? Certainly, it's that. Um, if, uh, if Lauren stayed out too late and her dad said, you're grounded, and then mom said, you know what? I'm going to give you grace this week. Um, it's unmerited. She did nothing to earn it, but she was going to be punished, and mom said, I'm going to give you grace. It's God giving us what we don't deserve. Many of you, if you've grown up in church, you've heard those two definitions. It's a gift, obviously. Unmerited favor, it's a gift. But it's also this, what is it? Actually, sure, it's a gift, sure, it's favor, but what is it? I think it's safe to say that God's grace is God's activity. And again, maybe we go, that doesn't do much for me. It's God's action, though. Like, who has she said God is dead? Like God is up to so much stuff in this world that we are absolutely blind to. You know, if you go to third world churches, you go to Africa, you'll see God in action like crazy because it's not just God, it's spiritual warfare, people are still being uh, overcome by demons, and it's like, it's craziness overseas. In America, I don't know if Satan here is just like, you know what, they got Money and sex and power that are keeping them pretty entertained, entertainment, and that they're, I don't know, I think they're pretty distracted. But overseas, they don't have all this stuff in third world countries. But it's God's activity, it's God's action. That's what grace is. It's God giving you, it's doing things in your life, even though it's Him. So let's look at verse 11 together, starting at verse 11. What does the grace of God do? Yes, it's the fuel for the good life. Yes, it's God's activity. But what does it do? So verses 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, that does what? Number one, offers salvation to all people. Now notice the wording there too. So it's the grace of God offers salvation to all people. There is a growing, growing number of people that believe in something called universalism. It's false. Universalism says everybody's saved. Everybody's going to believe, God loves everybody, and everybody will be saved. Um, God offers salvation, buddy. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But not everybody accepts that free gift. I wish they would. I wish that was the case. God loves us enough to give us a choice. It's not forced on us. It cannot be forced. Girls, if a guy starts pursuing you and pursuing you and pursuing you, but you don't want him to keep pursuing you, there's a certain point where that's a big deal, right? You get a restraining order. You, you can't force love. God doesn't force his on anybody, but it's offered to everybody. But we know that there are people who reject God's grace. But certainly it is offered. It's only effectual, though, to those who believe by faith. So that's number one. It offers salvation, but it also does. Number two, God's grace teaches. What does it teach? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to worldly passions. It also teaches us to the positive, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. But so, two things. God's grace saves, and God's grace trains. Offers salvation and it teaches. In, uh, in big theological words, you could say God's gra- it's God's grace in salvation, which the text uses, and God's grace in sanctification. Sanctification is just this big church word that to sanctify means to set apart, to make holy. It's the same Greek word as holy. To make holy, to set apart. We use it as our growth and godliness. That we say, when you become a, it's called justification. Sanctification is your growth and maturing and godliness and your sort of progress in the faith. This text says that grace does both of those. It it saves us and it trains us. Really, almost every, not every, but a lot of Christian, a lot of errors in Christian doctrine and Christian teaching comes down to ignoring or neglecting one of these two things. Error number one is this: that some I just want you to be aware of this. I'm, I'll try to go this quickly, but I think this is important. Some teachers and preachers really emphasize God's grace um, in salvation, that God's grace saves us, but they neglect that God's grace trains us, um, changes us. Uh, it's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you ever get a chance to read his biography, I don't even know a lot about him. I've never read it, but he was like, he tried to take down Hitler. Um, I think he was a German. He was in Germany, but he was also a wonderful Christian guy, wrote extensively some great books, but he like made it his sort of life goal to take out Hitler. Um, and I believe he was killed by the Nazis. Somebody. Anyway, but if you have a chance to like, you need to read a report, a book for a school report or something, look up Dietrich But so Cheap Grace, a person who says they've been saved, but goes on living their life as if nothing has ever changed. They have the same person. They, they never have changed anything. Essentially, they feel like Christianity is a get out of hell free card, and if I just pray this magical abracadabra prayer, I can pray that prayer and suddenly I'm whisked away and I'll go to heaven when I die, but I can go on sinning as much as I want because that's, they don't really understand grace, but that's, um, that's sort of one camp. And they still maybe are just awful, they're just jerks of people, but I know people, who, in fact there's churches that teach that that's fine to do. Um, I want to say this, that I, I think uh, John Calvin put it like this, and I think this is absolutely correct: um, that faith alone saves you. But he said the faith that saves you is never alone, meaning it will produce good deeds, some sort of obedience. That grace, there's just God's grace does something to your heart. It doesn't mean it's not earning salvation. Faith alone saves you, but when faith saves you, there's just this natural outworking of faith that produces obedience and starts to produce life change. It doesn't happen overnight. In fact, there is no like, set time, or, but somehow slowly, it could just be inward, there's slowly a heart change. It's just what God's grace does. And I think, quite frankly, a lot of times non-Christians look at Christians who've just adopted this method, they own God's grace has saved them, doesn't change them, and they go, why would I want to be a Christian? Because you have not become, you're, you're a Christian and you talk about being a Christian, but you're a jerk of a guy or a girl, and you're just an awful person. I think too often that's maybe what non-Christians see. The opposite error, as you can imagine, is this, that people um, emphasize God's grace, that God's grace trains us, changes us, sanctifies us, and they sort of neglect that God's grace alone saves us. It's not pronounced that way. Nobody would probably just come out and say that, but we might label this error legalism. And legalism is this implicit idea that basically says you're good with God based on how you're living, based on your behavior. And the problem is, many times, If we're not renouncing ungodliness, if we're not living as well as we could, if we're not always keeping up with obeying God, doing the Ten Commandments, then maybe you're not a Christian. And so you end up in this field not acting in Jesus, but trusting in how good you are or in how well you're keeping the rules. We've talked about this quite a bit before, and we slip into this by default, just so many of us. And we start to go, am I really a Christian? Because I've been doing some sort of unchristianly things lately or on the weekends and i i don't know why i'm doing this but i do but if you get if you just get that god's grace does both always does both it saves you and it grows you it's for salvation and it's for sanctification you'll be on track we have to see that god's grace is the fuel for both but so verse 11 says for the grace of god has appeared how has god's grace appeared how has God given us his grace, his activity? Well, in this passage, we go, and one, for one example, it's in Jesus. He's given us grace in Jesus because Jesus has appeared. Skip down to verse 14. At the very end of verse 13 says, Jesus Christ, verse 14, gave himself for us. Who gave himself for us. So get this, the heart of the grace of God, the essential movement of the grace of God toward us is found in this one simple phrase. And again, I've known, maybe I beat this like a dead horse, and we just talk about this every week because we, we should be talking about the gospel every week, but it's found in this little phrase, God gave himself for us. This right here is the heart of the gospel, you guys, substitution. The gospel is substitution, or this, again, this big theological word, substitutionary atonement, that Jesus gave himself for us. Jesus stood in our place, if you miss this, in fact, if you get everything else right about Jesus, you, miss this, you miss the gospel. It's 2 Corinthians five twenty one. God made him who knew no sin—that is Jesus—to be sin for us, so that in him we might righteousness of God. Can you believe that God made him who had no sin to be sin? Does that mean that Jesus actually became sinful? No. But he took all of our sin on himself so that in him we might become, we get righteousness of God. So you can see that Jesus is a great moral teacher, that he's a great example to live your life after, that he's someone that uh, you should strive to be like. But if you see all of that and miss that he's our substitute, you miss the gospel. You don't get it right. This is the heart and center of the gospel is salvation by substitution. Jesus has substituted himself for us. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. Just again, what I just said. God has taken everything we deserve and put it on Jesus, given it to Jesus, and he has taken everything that Jesus deserved and has given it to us. Absolutely radical. Absolutely grace, right? Because we totally deserved that. Any sort of sin, doesn't matter how big or how small, is rebellion against God. And the penalty for that is death and yet Jesus is traded for us, salvation by substitution. That's the heart of the whole Christian message. So if you ever, in fact, I think if you hear sermons that only ever teach you to just be like Jesus and to be a good example, that's fine. It gets maybe halfway there. It doesn't get the whole way there. Because he can be example, but if he's not your Savior, it doesn't matter. So there's two ways offered uh, by just religions and worldviews in our world, right? There's salvation by substitution, that's Jesus, or there's salvation by obedience, which is virtually every other religion. And in fact, many of us are still in that worldview. We still think of Christianity as salvation by obedience, or many of our friends do. And it's very good news to free them of that. Is there advice? Sure, there's advice, but that comes after we know that our identity is secure in Christ. Um... Which is why Christianity is absolutely unique, as I've said before, in the religions of the world. It's absolutely unlike every other religion or worldview out there. Because no matter how good you are, or how rich you are, or how popular you are, you can't make yourself right with God. You can't do it. We We need Jesus. We need a substitute who is perfect, who could do it in our place. And so only Jesus has paid the price for what our sins deserve. And so look at verse 14. I'm wrapping up. Verse fourteen, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. So the grace of God in Jesus, number one, redeems us from all wickedness, which means we learn here we're wicked. We had to be redeemed from that. Just this is sin. We're wicked. And secondly, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So secondly, he God purifies us. So not only are we wicked, we learn here. We see we're also impure. But God takes care of that, right? Because he's our substitute. And it's not because of anything we've done. It's because of his grace, as we'll see next week. So he's our substitute. And that's, that's what it all comes down to. We're, we're impure. We've rebelled against God. We've either been very, very disobedient, or some of us maybe even, we are so obedient that we are proud and arrogant and self-righteous, and we become Pharisees, and we look down our noses at other people who are we are because we're pretty darn good. But then we just get proud. And so Jesus is our substitute. Finally, look at verse 15. I love this. Uh, Paul says this, these then are the things you should teach. Titus, you're planning churches. You should teach these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. Now again, this book is not just for pastors. It's not just for me. The Bible is not just for pastors. And so what should you do Somehow, one, you should know this, but you should teach this. Somehow, in some fashion, in some way, somebody asks you about your Christianity. We totally live in like a post-Christian world now. Um, and you guys are probably very aware of that. I feel like I'm 34 and I'm starting to go, this is not the kind of world that even when 15 years ago when I was in college, or more than, no, it was about that. Um, it was just a diff- I feel like more and more we're increasingly in this world where your friends have no context for some sort of religion, sometimes at all. Maybe a lot of your friends are Catholic. Maybe a lot of your friends, maybe they're Lutheran or whatever. Maybe they sometimes go to church. But I would guess most of your friends have nothing. No, we're, we're not raised with any sort of religion or worldview. Maybe church, uh, Christmas and Easter, churchgoers. But so you need, maybe you need to teach this. God's grace, the gospel. We need this every day. God's grace is the fuel that will bring you to the good life. And so, as I was thinking about this, you go, but how do I get it? If it's just God's grace, and you say, that sounds so simple. Like, we always want a rule, we want a law. You want, I, I, like, I go to church on Sundays, and I would rather just be told something I should do, right? Like, maybe God, I could hear God speaking to me if I was consistent in my Bible reading. That, and that's easy, right? And then that's, that's sort of what we want but that's really not the way it works. It's just God's grace. And I don't know that God's grace is measurable, but you know what? We can ask for it. You can just go to God in prayer and say, God, I need your grace. Like, I want more of your And then you look for it, I guess. And again, many times God doesn't open up your curtains and fly in or send you an angel and like give you this grand. He just doesn't work that way, it doesn't seem. Not that he can't, have to look for him, and you maybe have to find him, or you, you see him in the small things in life, but so we run to God, and we delight in him, and we make our home in him, and so just three quick application points. Um, one, I would say, like, pray for grace. My three application points are this. We pray, we read our Bibles, we go to church. Pray and read your Bible, go to church. Pray and read your Bible, go to church. Jack Archer made a song like that when we were doing Tribe Together. It was awesome, but on mission trips, he would sing the song, pray and read your Bible, um, but we pray with seriousness and passion and conviction because it's our lifeline to God. It is our communication line to the God of the universe. And it's real and it works and he hears us because he's God. And so certainly we pray. We read our Bibles. Why? Because our lives depend on it. Why? Because it's the truth. It's not the truth about everything in the world. Your math book is probably also true and other things you learn at school, but it's truth. Everything in here is truth. It matters about life, and so we need to open our Bibles and expose ourselves to truth on a regular basis. And then finally, we come to church because we need Christian community. We need to make friends that are Christians, and we need friends that are Christians. And no matter where it is, we need to surround ourselves with a Christian community. Because you know what? No matter who you surround yourself with, they will rub off on you. You say, I don't need this. I don't care if... If you're just with your family, if your family God, whoever you surround yourself with is gonna rub off on you. For so many of us in here, you guys go to school, and like me in middle school, you use awful swear, like you just cuss all day long at school. Why? Because you're around all day at school. Public school or private. I'm just saying the community that surrounds you totally rubs off on you. And we know that, right? You're a senior, you're going to college this fall. I would beg you. Unless you're at Christian University, you're going to Lincoln. I don't know where you're going. You're going to Kearney. You're going across the nation. Look up navigators on your campus or Campus Crusade, which is now called Crew. I took a, a student to lunch two weeks ago. He's a sophomore at Lincoln, and uh, he's doing great. And he's totally involved in navigators. And he goes, Brad, I had never heard of navigators. He goes, It was a summer oasis. I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I just took, he was standing by this lake. We were at Walnut Grove Park in Millard, and I go, in a month, you're going to be on Lincoln's campus. I go, you need to look up Navigators or Campus Crusade. They're not the only campus ministries, but they're the biggest and they're going to be the most pronounced and you're probably going to encounter them day one. And, um, and he goes, I'm glad you said that. He goes, I did. I signed up day one. He goes, this guy every week came to my dorm room door, knocked on the door and invited me to a Bible study. And he goes, I blew him off for the whole first semester. He goes, I'm busy. I don't really know you. Um, I thought it was kind of weird. Just blew him off. And something happened that year, Christmas break, and he came back. The guy came to his door one last time, and he goes, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come to your Bible study. Like, And um, it totally changed his group of friends. He realized a lot of his friends first semester were from high school that moved with him from Burke were not good influences. And um, later the guy told him, he goes, that was the last time I was going to come to your dorm room because you, I mean, you turned me down like eight times or whatever it was. He goes, that was the final. I was going to give it one more shot. And Mike is leading a small group now. He's on a leadership team. Um, I'm just telling you, your community matters. And I know you all have friends, and you have plenty of friends that are non-Christians. Man, that's necessary too, but be careful around yourself with. Let's pray. We'll go to small groups.